Welcome back on this Thursday. Well, if you were to sit down with John Piper's collected works, his 13-volume collected works, uh, published back in 2017, and if you read the entire thing beginning to end, you'd come across the word satisfy or satisfied nearly 1,500 times. Satisfy, satisfied, those loaded terms are all over those works, and they're all over your ministry, Pastor John, but we rarely if ever, read a definition of what you mean by the term leading to Ralph's question today. Pastor John, hello to you. I thank God for your ministry in my life. I have read many of your books and listened to many of your messages, especially those on Christian hedonism. That idea revolutionized my relationship with the Lord. You have spoken about being satisfied in God thousands and thousands of times in your life, but I cannot find any reference in your works to where you have defined that term to you. What does it mean to be satisfied? This is good for me to be pressed to ponder a term that I ordinarily use because I consider it self-explanatory. Right. Sometimes those are the very terms that would be most fruitful to at least try to put into words or to relate to real-life experiences so that we don't just speak with empty phrases. So thank you for the question. Yeah. I think the first thing to say is that it doesn't really matter very much what John Piper means by satisfaction, but it matters a lot. I mean, it's hard to exaggerate how much it matters what God means by it. When his inspired spokesman in the Bible used the word, for example, Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied in the Lord as with fat and rich food. Psalm 65, We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 103, the Lord satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul. Matthew 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be satisfied or content. I know how to abound and I know how to be in need satisfied. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be satisfied. Be content with what you have, for the Lord has promised never to leave you. So it's not so much what I think satisfaction is, it matters, but rather, what do texts like these mean? (laughs) What did God intend when he called us in all those passages and and others to be satisfied? What kind of experience are we talking about? So let me try to get at what satisfaction in God or satisfaction in all that God is for us refers to. First, notice that the experience of satisfaction corresponds to desire and longing and yearning in the human heart. 
there would be no such thing as satisfaction if there were no such thing as desire. Hmm. God created human beings as desire factories. Everybody has desires, longings, yearnings, wantings. God made us that way. And our problem as sinners is not that our desires are too strong, but that they are directed toward the wrong things. That's the essence of sin. That's the essence of evil. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two great evils. What is that? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's evil. Hmm. Evil is to turn away from being satisfied with God as your fountain. All our desires are designed by God to be Godward desires, to move toward the fountain of living water. Even when we desire earthly things like food or friendship or praise or beauty, all these things are tastes of God's goodness and pointers to God as the final satisfaction. Yes. So, the first thing I would say about the meaning of satisfaction in God is that it refers to the experience of having our desire, longing, yearning, wanting, filled. And filled means not too little and not too much. Satisfaction in God is the experience where God is enjoyed as the perfect fullness that corresponds to the God-shaped desires of our hearts. Number two, sometimes I use the phrase all-satisfying like the all-satisfying God. And by this I mean that there are no desires which in the end God will not purify and satisfy with himself. Even sinful desires have some vestige of legitimacy. God will rescue that fragment of legitimacy and cleanse it of all that is destructive and fill it up in the age to come. When this, when this sinful age is over and the kingdom has fully and manifestly come, there will be no unmet longings, no unfulfilled desires, no dissatisfaction. Number three. There are many mysteries about what our experience will be like when we are totally perfected in the age to come. But for now, I want to stress that to say Jesus is all-satisfying does not mean that when he becomes our satisfaction, our desiring ceases. That would be a mistake to say that our desiring ceases. Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Now, I don't think he means that when we are born again and receive him by faith, we never desire him again. Right. I don't think he means that. I think he means finding Jesus to be the bread and the water that our souls have always longed for means our quest is over. We no longer look for a better drink or a better food. We have found our all-satisfying treasure. But in this sinful age, and I'm including myself now as a sinner, remaining corruption within me that needs mortifying, in this sinful age where the heart of faith is always embattled, our experience of the satisfaction of Christ will always be imperfect, fragmentary, ever-changing, renewable, greater and lesser. Christ remains who he is, right? He doesn't change. He remains who he is, all-satisfying. And our new birth with new spiritual taste buds that know he is the all-satisfying one remains attached to him. We don't lose him and then find him and lose him and then find him. He holds on to us. Hmm. We do not run away after some new fountain or new bread. But for now, our experience is up and down. It won't be like that in the age to come. But how desire and satisfaction will be related in the age to come, frankly, I can't answer that fully. Number four, and finally, and this is really important, the reality of love for other people, and especially compassion for those who suffer, demands that our satisfaction in this age of pain and sorrow be a dissatisfied satisfaction. Almost 40 years ago, when I wrote the chapter on love in the book Desiring God, I said this, the weeping of compassion is the weeping of joy, or you could say the weeping of satisfaction, impeded, hindered, in the extension of itself to another, close quote. Now, that sounds paradoxical. Yeah. Weeping satisfaction, an odd phrase. But what it means is that when God grants me to know him as satisfying to my soul's deepest needs, and then I look on a suffering person, my God-given satisfaction at that moment has in it the impulse to expand and include the other person in it. I want them in it. I want them to share it. Satisfaction in God is not indifferent to those who don't share it. If we could, we would fold them in, in, into our satisfaction in God. But if we are hindered from that, it is our very joy, our very satisfaction, impeded in the extension of itself that grieves It is a peculiarly Christian form of dissatisfied 
satisfaction. So, Ralph, that's my effort to clarify what I mean by satisfaction in God. One, it is a filling up of God-given, God-shaped desires. Two, it will in the end leave no desire unfilled for God's children forever. Three, for now the satisfaction in God is embattled and variable, and desires must be rekindled. Four, for now even the best experience of satisfaction in God is a dissatisfied satisfaction when we are surrounded by the pain of those who don't yet have it and the sorrows of this fallen world. Mm. Wonderful summary and definition here, Pastor John. Thank you for walking us through uh, all those Bible texts. And Ralph, thank you for the excellent foundational question today. No one has asked this question to this point in the podcast that I can remember. If you have a great question like Ralph did that you want to ask Pastor John, maybe one that no one else is asking, email me. Ask Pastor John at DesiringGod.org. Next week, we're going to launch into a mini-series of sorts, uh, apologetics questions on the person and work of Christ. Questions like, why did Christ leave after Easter? Uh, Couldn't he have just stayed with us? Or why didn't his redemption of us cost him eternal suffering? Isn't that the price? And why isn't there more archaeological or historical written evidence for the death and resurrection of Christ? Those, Those types of questions, big questions up next and over the next couple of weeks. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. We'll see you back here on Monday.